From Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Democratic presidential hopeful Mayor Pete Buttigieg is speaking out about the dangers of climate change. Speaking to you as a mayor who found myself compelled to open the emergency operations center of my city twice in two years for floods that we were told were 500-year to 1,000-year floods happening back-to-back. Don't tell me climate is not a security issue. Also, the Trump administration moves to lessen protections for the once abundant greater sage-grass. They would come in here right around the 1st of July, just thousands and thousands of them. I've seen them flying, and I don't know how many you'd see, hundreds of thousands, and so you can see in any direction that's open there. As far as you could see, there were big sage-grouse walking eight, ten feet apart. That and more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. From PRI and the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios at the University of Massachusetts, Boston, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. The presidential primary season can have its surprises, and one for the Democrats this year is the 37-year-old mayor of South Bend, Indiana, Pete Buttigieg. His fans call him Mayor Pete, and he was virtually unknown just a few weeks ago, but this Rhodes scholar and veteran of Navy intelligence is riding high on a wave of media attention. Of course, there is more to a presidential campaign than excitement, but it's hard to win without it. And when Pete Buttigieg came for an appearance at the Courier Art Museum in Manchester, New Hampshire, there was an overflow gathering outside. Living on Earth's Jenny Doring has our story. There was a crowd of at least 100 people who weren't able to get into the venue. So Mayor Pete stood on a bench outside and revved up the crowd. I'm really humbled that you took time to spend with me and uh, really appreciate your motivation to help bring about something that will not only win an election, but help us begin to win an era. For the 300 or so who did make it inside the Courier Museum, the atmosphere was buoyant. Mayor Buttigieg highlighted the importance of looking towards the future, especially when it comes to the effects of climate change. And speaking to you as a mayor who found myself compelled to open the emergency operations center of my city twice in two years for floods that we were told were 500-year to 1,000-year floods happening back-to-back, don't tell me climate is not a security issue. Mayor Buttigieg didn't mention the Green New Deal here in New Hampshire, but at a rally in Boston in early April, he said he supports the plan to decarbonize the U.S. economy and fund clean energy jobs. He compared the ambitious plan to the moonshot. In the same way that that President Kennedy hadn't mastered all of the rocket trajectories in 1960, when he wanted us to get to the moon by 1970, right? I still think we commit to it now, precisely because we're not sure how to get there, but we gotta kinda tie ourselves to that goal and then do everything we can as a country to get there because I simply don't believe we can afford to wait. President Kennedy was our youngest president at 43 years old. Mayor Buttigieg is just 37 and says his age makes him uniquely qualified to take on the issue of climate change as president. If this generation doesn't step up, we're in trouble. This is, after all, the generation that's going to be on the business end of climate change for as long as we live. In 2017, the South Bend, Indiana mayor joined the Mayor's National Climate Action Agenda. 
That's a group of hundreds of mayors who have pledged to work in their cities to reduce greenhouse gas emissions to meet the goals of the Paris Climate Agreement. He's made redevelopment and urban livability key priorities for his city. His Smart Streets program, which widened sidewalks and added new bike lanes and urban trees, has been credited with revitalizing South Bend's downtown. Mayor Buttigieg says the greening of South Bend helped attract over $90 million in private investment. And when President Trump's Environmental Protection Agency scrubbed climate change data from its website in 2017, South Bend joined other cities in archiving the agency's data on its own website. Mayor Pete's willingness to talk about the urgent need to act on climate seemed to resonate with folks of all ages at the Courier Museum in Manchester. People like Elise McDonald. I would say it's like a top two issue for me, um, along with getting big money out of politics, which is definitely related. Um, I'm a Gen Xer myself, so I'm, I'm not. I'm not a boomer. I'm not. I'm not a millennial. I'm right in the middle. But um, these these issues have been on my mind since the first Earth Day in 1970. Elise was just one of the many people who lined up to meet Mayor Pete after his speech. College sophomore Sophia Zamboli waited excitedly with several friends. It's very important to us. Actually, um, I'm one of the leaders of um, Tufts Democrats, so we are um, actually organizing right now an IOTF panel, which is Issues of the Future, and this year's panel is on climate change and the Green New Deal. We're seeing the impacts daily, and it's just something that affects our future. Timothy Smith, a state representative for New Hampshire's Manchester Ward 10, is just a couple years older than Mayor Buttigieg. I think it's really positive to have someone from my generation in a national campaign. Um, you know, the experience that people like Mayor Pete and myself grew up with is different than anyone else who's run for president in this country before. Um, and bringing climate change front and center is gonna be a very positive thing. I think he has a more credible case for that than a lot of the other candidates um, since, again, our generation and our kids are the ones who are going to have to suffer from it. Pete Buttigieg is quick to highlight his personal stake in the issue of climate change. By definition, the longer you're planning to be here, the more you have at stake in the decisions that are being made right now. It's why I'm, I'm always talking about uh, the need to think about the world as it will look in 2054 when I get to the current age of the current president. He likes to say his campaign for president is not just about the next four years but the next 40. And I see in the audiences that I speak to across the country the makings of a generational alliance, not generational conflict, not what was experienced in the 60s of young people versus their parents, but an alliance around the idea that we ought to have a better future and that everybody cares about that future, no matter your age. With an eye on the future and the next year and a half of campaigning for president, Pete Buttigieg is hoping that climate change and our shared need for a livable planet will be a uniting issue that helps carry him to the White House. For Living on Earth, I'm Jenny Doring in Manchester, New Hampshire. Let's take a look beyond the headlines now with Peter Dykstra. He's an editor with Environmental Health News at CHN.org and DailyClimate.org. 
He's joining us on the line now from Atlanta. Hi there, Peter. What's going on? Hi, Steve. There were two reports that came out this past week. One, a peer-reviewed science report in the journal Marine Pollution Bulletin. The other, a report from two NGOs on marine plastics in our waterways. The first one from Marine Pollution Bulletin says that between 4.8 to 12.7 million metric tons of plastic pollution have been dumped into the world's oceans, and they tried to set a cost to the global economy from lost species, potential damage to human health, and of course, losses to fisheries. Their rough guess is $2.5 trillion a year, only set to go up. Every year. And what about the other study? The other study is the Plastic Rivers Report from Earthwatch Europe, and another one from Plastic Oceans UK. I guess we have to get used to setting the UK and Europe apart from each other the way that the UK is trying to do with Brexit right now. They said they gave us some good news. Plastic bags were down to only 1% of the plastic garbage in fresh water, and that, they think, is a reflection of a long-time effort to reduce the amount of plastic bags used in grocery stores and other things. The bad news out of that is that other forms of plastic are still riding high. Plastic bottles are now number one. Food wrappers are number two. And number three are cigarette butts. A little bit of good news, though, those plastic bags, apparently because of human consumer action, are on the way down. And I never knew cigarette butts had plastic in them, but hey, you learn something every time. A lot of cigarettes, and as an addictive thing, they are a negative renewable resource, I guess. (laughs) Okay. Hey, what else do you have for us this week, Peter? It's a little three-part drama involving three charismatic megafauna species in South Africa's Kruger National Park. Kruger is famous uh, for the wildlife that's there. They're also famous for wildlife tourism, but they also still have a poaching problem. There was uh, recently a rhino poacher who was reportedly stomped to death by elephants and then eaten by lions. (laughs) That certainly does sound like a bit of uh, charismatic megafauna karma. Is that the way to put it? This all took place in a section of the Kruger Park called Crocodile Bridge. It would be even more karmic if you could get the crocodiles in on it. Now, how do we know this is so? Well, there were four other rhino poachers who came out unstomped by elephants, uneaten by lions, but they ended up arrested by game wardens. They told the tale, and this is also not without precedent. A few months ago, there was a report of three rhino poachers that were eaten by lions in a private South African game reserve elsewhere in the country. Interesting. And I gather to protect rhinos there, they're forcing poachers to operate at night. And of course, that's when lions hunt. That's when lions hunt. And I guess poachers are apparently delicious. (laughs) All right, time now for us to go back in history a ways. What do you see? We're going to look at a 40th anniversary from April 19th, 1979. That's when the U.S. EPA formally banned the manufacturer of polychlorinated biphenyls, PCBs. Yeah, those are really nasty chemicals that are chemical cousins, actually, of dioxins. They're nasty, they're carcinogens, and one of the problems is that they're extremely long-lasting. Even though PCBs have not legally been made in this country for 40 years, they're used in electrical transformers, 
GE and other companies dumped them in places like New Bedford Harbor, not far from you in Massachusetts, and the Hudson River. There's also a huge PCB problem 40 years later in Waukegan Harbor in Lake Michigan in Illinois. They not only are in the water, but then they show up in the bodies, particularly of marine mammals, seem to have high levels of PCBs to this day. They can show up in saltwater in, uh, in marine mammals. They'll show up in freshwater in sport and commercial fish like striped bass. The Hudson River is teeming with striped bass right now. People don't catch them because you're not allowed to eat them. And what's the body burden of PCBs for humans? PCBs continue to be long-lasting and continue to show up in human tissue samples even after the last ones were made 40 years ago. That's because PCBs are believed to last in a toxic and carcinogenic form for possibly hundreds of years. Thanks, Peter. Peter's an editor with Environmental Health News. That's ehn.org and dailyclimate.org. We'll talk to you again real soon. Okay, Steve. Thanks a lot. Talk to you soon. And there's more on these stories at our website, loe.org. As the rhino poacher in South Africa found out, a close encounter with an elephant can be deadly, or at least risky, as Living on Earth's explorer-in-residence Mark Seth Lender also discovered. A herd of elephants crossing the road, all of the adults as usual, female. We stop at a respectful distance and turn the motor off, and let the elephants pass. Branches snap, leaves rustle and give way as they climb up into the forest on the other side. After they can no longer be seen, we can still hear them. They won't turn back, but we wait, giving them time, before we start the engine. Just then, just as we start to move, a bull elephant in full must breaches cover. At first, the bull does not even see us. Then he does and everything changes. His head swings, his eyes go wide, locking onto the offending presence, and he leans first towards, then away from us. What? What? He does not have to say it for us to hear it. The driver jams the stick into reverse, and the little jeep pulls back 50 yards, not fast enough to antagonize him any more than we already have, but fast and keeps the engine idling. The bull elephant comes to exactly where we stood, as if there is a line in the dirt, squints, lowers his head. The ichor of arousal runs a dark river from his temples and down his cheeks. Standing in the shade, he himself seems not elephant gray, but almost black, glossy black, towering ten feet over us. We move back again, further this time. Again he comes to where we were. Once more we pull away, and finally, it is enough. He gives us a head toss, kicks a cloud of dirt in our direction, and in an attitude of body and tusks and trunk that can only be described as disdain, walks away from us in his big, swaying, slow-motion elephant walk that is faster than the fastest man on earth can run, and blunts his way into the forest toward where the object of his desire 
has decamped. Lucky for us, he had something on his mind. Other than rage. Living on Earth's Explorer-in-Residence, Mark Seth Lender. If you like what you hear on Living on Earth, please join us with a gift of $5 or more. Just go to LOE.org and click on Donate at the top of the page. And thank you. Just ahead, the unique mating call of the greater sage-grouse, but first this note on emerging science from Don Lyman. Humans can hear the gentle buzzing of a honeybee with our ears, but it turns out that some flowers can also hear the sound of their favorite pollinators. Well, kind of. Researchers at Tel Aviv University recently found that the concentration of sugar in the nectar of evening primrose temporarily increased within minutes of sensing vibrations from pollinators' wings. The researchers suspect the flowers act like ears and can pick up the specific frequencies of bees' wings, but are able to tune out background noise like wind. To test their hypothesis, scientists exposed plants in the lab to five sound treatments, silence, recordings of a honeybee from four inches away, and computer-generated sounds in low, intermediate, and high frequencies. Plants under soundproof glass jars, the silence group, as well as plants in the intermediate and high-frequency groups, had no significant increase in sugar concentration in their nectar. But plants exposed to recordings of bee sounds and similar low-frequency sounds produced as much as 65% more sugar in their nectar within three minutes of exposure to the recordings. The researchers believe that sweeter nectar may attract more pollinators and increase the chance that bee-detecting evening primrose will cross-pollinate with other plants and pass on their bee-hearing genes. The researchers also conducted experiments that showed that the bowl-shaped flowers of the primrose picked up and amplified sound vibrations. This single study has opened up a new field of scientific research, which the researchers call phytoacoustics. That's this week's note on emerging science. I'm Don Lyman. When Secretary of the Interior Ryan Zinke stepped down in January amid multiple ethics probes, his Deputy Secretary, David Bernhardt, filled in. And now as the longtime oil and agribusiness lobbyist formally takes the reins at Interior, criticism is mounting over alleged conflicts of interest. There are also complaints Mr. Bernhardt interfered with a key U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service report that detailed the risks pesticides can pose to endangered species. The Center for Biological Diversity and the New York Times obtained more than 84,000 documents about the pesticide report using the Freedom of Information Act. Brett Hartle is Director of Government Affairs for the Center and questions if the public interest will be the highest priority for Mr. Bernhardt. Well, uh, his track record is very much on the side of industry and special interests, and 
He's worked over the last, you know, 20 years or more with a pretty single-minded purpose to weaken conservation laws, to weaken protections on the ground, on public lands, and for wildlife. He has been working on these issues inside and outside of government. Um, he was the chief political lawyer, so that the number three position during the George W. Bush administration. He knows all the ins and outs of how bureaucracies work and how the federal government makes decisions and where the pressure points are and, and how to make things happen. This administration, we've seen a lot of very unqualified nominees, people that do not understand the job they're doing. David Bernhardt knows what he's doing and he knows what he wants. And I think that's actually why he's so dangerous. I gather much of your concern is based on some 84,000 or more pages of documents that the Center for Biological Diversity and news organizations obtained via the Freedom of Information Act. Um, what do those documents show to you that is paramount concern right now? Sure. So to take a step back, for about four years now, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, which is the agency responsible for protecting, conserving, and recovering endangered species, has been working on, or was working on, an assessment under the Endangered Species Act called a biological opinion. And this biological opinion reviewed the impacts of three pesticides, chlorpyrifos, which is fairly well known. It's an insecticide that is thought to cause neurological developmental problems in children and two other pesticides, malathion and diazinon. These are all what are called organophosphate insecticides, which might not mean that much, but I'll just say that the organophosphate class of pesticides was first discovered in World War II because they have the same chemical properties as nerve agents. They actually affect the nervous system in all animals of all types, so they're very highly toxic. They've been on the shelf for many, many years, but the harm has you know, always been suspected to be quite significant to endangered species. And career staff at the Fish and Wildlife Service worked for four years on trying to understand where those harms were happening and to which species on the ground. And all of that work basically stopped in 2017. And it's been derailed and slowed down and we're told sort of publicly that these reviews may be finished by 2020 or 2021. And the Freedom of Information Act documents show that when David Bernhardt was briefed by the career staff at Fish and Wildlife about this assessment, that everything changed. And these assessments basically, for all real purposes, stopped and the, the most damning piece of information is that he was told that nearly 1,400 endangered plants and animals, the United States has about 1,800, 1,750 total endangered species nationwide, 1,400 were being jeopardized, which is a, a term in the Endangered Species Act, and it means that their existence is being put at risk. So they are potentially closer to extinction as a result of these pesticides. What species are at the top of the list of concern, as far as you know? Well, so that's interesting. We, we don't actually know because many of these documents are still being hidden and we're trying to get them brought to light. 
after the New York Times story broke, there was a letter from um, House Democrats requesting that these documents be released to the public. Senator Wyden from Oregon asked the Inspector General, sort of the watchdog of the Department of Interior, to look into this issue. We know from uh, the PowerPoint, the presentation that David Bernhardt received from the career staff, that the scientists were actually very worried about most endangered plants because the vast, vast majority of endangered plants are pollinated by insects, and they are very closely tied to specific species of insects in order to be pollinated. And if these very broad sort of non-discriminatory pesticides are being used, they could simply wipe out all of the, the pollinators. And if you don't have pollination, then you, know, you don't reproduce uh, in future generations. So they're very worried about listed plants. We saw in the materials that they were worried about species like the San Joaquin kit fox, which is found in California. They said the adverse effects to the, the fox directly, as well as from the reduction in prey and sort of small mammals would harm the species. We know the Cape Sable seaside sparrow of Southern Florida. I think they said potentially 6% a year were going to be lost because of pesticide exposure. And if you only have a few hundred individuals, losing 6% a year is significant. But we don't know. We're still trying to get more of these records. You know, the, the Trump administration is doing their best to keep them out of the public's view. So no one really knows how dangerous these pesticides really are. We've seen a collapse of insect populations in a number of places around the world. To what extent do you think that these pesticides that you're trying to get the information about are not only endangering endangered species, but the rest of us? Yeah, I mean, there are unfortunately many, many, many pesticides that have been approved for market by the EPA over the over the years and decades. And we have argued for a very long time that if you don't think about the impacts to endangered species and protect sort of the most endangered uh, things out there, what does that say about everything else? Very few pesticides have any, I would say, meaningful site-based restrictions on their use. You can use most pesticides anywhere in the nation to address any crop. Um, many of them are used for, you know, non-crop activities as well. So, you know, tree farms or mosquito control or, or whatever. But we don't really think about the large-scale impacts to sort of functioning healthy ecosystems if you're being doused by insecticide and then fungicides and herbicides. You know, all pesticides are basically poisons, and how they affect non-target organisms is just not considered. Unfortunately, like many of these issues, it's hard to draw the straight line of cause and effect because we live in a very complicated world and there's many threats to species and, and to wildlife. But it's clear that, you know, the overuse of pesticides without real restrictions is having big impacts out in the, the landscape. From your perspective, what's the motivation of David Bernhardt and the top level of the Department of Interior to block disclosure about how dangerous these pesticides may be to wildlife? Well, we know that a lot of the pesticide companies are and have been large donors to the Trump administration. So as an example, 
Dow Chemical, which is the maker of chlorpyrifos, gave $1 million to Donald Trump's inauguration, so back in 2017. And one of their first asks was that they wrote a letter to then-Secretary Ryan Zinke at the Interior Department, as well as Scott Pruitt at the EPA, and ask them to stop these reviews because from industry's perspective, chlorpyrifos, again, this is a, a pesticide that causes neurological developments in children, was close to being banned by the Obama administration. Unfortunately, they ran out of time and Scott Pruitt reversed them. But this is a pesticide that we are still using millions of pounds every year. And that's obviously a huge business profit if you were using that much of this pesticide on the ground. Um, so there's a huge financial incentive. Why does David Bernhardt want this? Well, I mean, his pattern has been since for many, many years that he, he takes industry's side. He has worked for industry. He works for the oil and gas industry, the mining industry, agriculture. He believes sort of their perspective and he wants to help them achieve their objectives. So you know, the motivation, sort of that classic drain the swamp situation that Donald Trump railed against during his campaign. But in, in reality, he has enabled probably more than any other modern recent president. Brett Hartle is Director of Government Affairs for the Center for Biological Diversity. Brett, thanks so much for taking the time with us today. Thanks a lot. Have a great day. Mr. Bernhardt declined to respond to repeated requests from Living on Earth to appear on this program. The Fish and Wildlife Report concluded that pesticides can multiply the risks for species in decline. The greater sage-grouse is not listed as endangered, but there's just a fraction of them remaining in the wild as compared to a century ago. And as Bird Notes' Michael Stein reports, the greater sage-grouse is perhaps most well-known for its unique mating call and dance. Dawn breaks across the sagebrush country of the West on a brisk March morning. Already, 15 male greater sage-grouse are strutting on their traditional display area, a sparsely vegetated arena amid the sage. As the sun rises, meadowlarks begin to sing. And we can now see the sage-grouse clearly. The enormous males are over two feet long and weigh six pounds. They stand bolt upright their long tails fanned like a turkey's tail, the dark backs and bellies contrasting sharply with their white breasts. When they display, the sage-grouse simultaneously scrape their wings back and forth against their flanks, expel air from twin fleshy chest sacs the size of tennis balls, and call softly. The resulting sound combines swishing, popping, and cooing. At the display area, known as a lek, the male sage-grouse perform for mating rites with the smaller females looking on. As lands formerly covered in sage are converted to agriculture, so goes the fate of the magnificent sage-grouse. In some areas, the grouse have less than 10% of their historical range. I'm Michael Stein. For photos of the greater sage-grouse, strut on over to our website, LOE.org. 
Coming up, we'll have more on the greater sagegrass. It was once so abundant, old-timers remember huge flocks and routinely cook them up. That's just ahead here on Living on Earth. Support for Living on Earth comes from Sailors for the Sea and Oceana, helping boaters race clean, sail green, and protect the seas they love. More information at sailorsforthesea.org. Earth Day is April 22nd, and in honor of Earth Month, we are looking back at some of our favorite stories and bringing you an update. This week, it's Clay Scott's 2002 story about the greater sagegrass. For decades, this showy bird has been ruffling feathers among Western cattle ranchers and energy developers working in sagebrush country. This landscape at first almost seems completely barren, but it's crucial habitat for a wide variety of wildlife. Greater sage-grouse are extremely sensitive to disturbances in their habitat, and their numbers have plummeted from millions in the 1800s to less than 200,000 today. Although the greater sage-grouse is not listed as endangered, a subspecies identified in the year 2000 and now called the Gunnison sage-grouse is on the endangered species list in the threatened category. Here is Clay Scott's 2002 report. On a cold spring morning in southwest Montana, Ben Diebel of the National Wildlife Federation is out looking for sage-grouse. The sun is just coming up, but at 6,000 feet elevation, the temperature is below freezing. Diebel walks briskly through the sagebrush. There are no obvious landmarks in this vast sea of grayish-green, but he knows exactly where he's going. He stops and points. See where the light is hitting the high-cut bank? Yeah. Go to the right, to the dark-cut bank. There's two cocks right below that. Through my binoculars, I make out two distant patches of white, the neck feathers of male sage-grouse. This is their communal mating ground, called a lek. For a two-week period in the spring, the mottled brown and black males congregate at the leks before dawn. They strut, spread their fan-like tails, and rub their wings across inflated air sacs on their necks, hoping to attract females. I ask Diebel why the birds have chosen this place for their lek. This is a, a good spot because the sagebrush isn't very tall, but they need to go to tall sagebrush with a lot of grass and forbs for safe nesting. So probably the hens are nesting a mile or more from here. The wary birds flush before we get close enough to observe their mating display. They're as big as large chickens, but surprisingly fast flyers. Diebel takes out a GPS unit, notes our position, and records the number of grouse we saw. Next spring, researchers will be able to return to this same spot to count the number of mating birds. Sage grouse can have home ranges of hundreds of square miles, yet each year, like spawning steelhead, they return to the exact same spot to mate. But that extraordinary fidelity to place also makes them vulnerable to changes in their habitat. And almost everywhere the birds live, that habitat is being altered, sometimes radically. What we find is um, everywhere in these habitats we're disturbing them um, in, in, uh, in ever-increasing tempos. Uh, for whatever reason, they're almost they're like the canary in the coal mine from the standpoint that they're one of the first species that disappears as these sage steppe ecosystems become unraveled. The sage steppe ecosystem is a vast arid area of mostly public land stretching from eastern California to the western edge of the Dakotas. Healthy sage steppe includes a variety of sagebrush species along with bunch grasses and other plants. But much of the ecosystem is in decline along with many of the species that live in it. Sage grouse in particular are dependent on old-growth sagebrush. Their mating and nesting grounds have been disturbed by oil and gas drilling, coal bed methane development, the conversion of sagebrush to agriculture, and especially by the grazing of livestock. 
Historic overgrazing in the sage steppe has reduced native grasses that many species depend on and led to the spread of invasive weeds that thrive in degraded soil. One recent study estimates that exotic weeds in sage country are spreading at more than 4,000 acres per day. Throughout the West, the majority of grazing has been on leased federal land. Now some environmental groups say it's time for that practice to stop for the sake of the sage grouse and for the health of the entire ecosystem. But ranchers here say banning grazing on public land would deal a death blow to entire communities. Roger Peters is the owner of the Dragging Y Ranch. Like many ranchers, he's suspicious of what he calls the environmental agenda. In Beaverhead County, Montana, we're dependent on grazing on federal lands because that's so much of what there is. You know, we live here, you have to use federal lands because there's not enough deeded land to go around. So now it appears to us that uh, sage-grouse, they say, ah, sage-grouse, we've got them on sage-grouse, we'll get them on something eventually to get their cows off uh, the public lands. Peter's ranch is on 60,000 acres of his own land, along with several times that amount of leased federal land, much of its sage-grouse habitat. He says he manages the land in an ecologically sound way, and he has no patience for those who want to tell him when and where to graze his cattle. He's especially angry at those environmental groups who think the sage-grouse should be put on the endangered species list. If the bird is listed, Peters says, many Western cattle operations would effectively be brought to a halt. Why penalize the guy that's got the last one? He's obviously the best caretaker of this endangered species, whatever it is. But who, whoever the poor guy is, the endangered species are found on his place. He's the one whose management is penalized. The advocacy group American Lands Alliance is leading the efforts to list the sage-grouse. Mark Salvo works on sagebrush issues for the organization. He denies that his position is anti-rancher. We're not suggesting that, that public lands uh, ought not be used, but we are suggesting that they have been used or abused uh, in the past and that changes need to be made. That's what the plight of the sage-grouse is showing us. But not all environmental groups feel an endangered species listing is the answer, at least at this point. Groups like the National Wildlife Federation are working with state and federal agencies, as well as landowners and others, to develop management plans for sage-grouse habitat. Ranchers are encouraged to keep their livestock away from nesting areas and to rotate their grazing to allow grass and other plants a chance to recover. Mark Salvo supports those efforts but says much more is needed. The looming threat of the Endangered Species Act, he says, is necessary to keep both ranchers and government agencies focused on the sage-grouse issue. Unless that threat is there, unless we continue to push to list the species, um, they may back off on some of their current efforts to, to, to restore and conserve it. What my challenge is to resource users and, and agencies and others who don't want to list the species under the Dangerous Species Act is you probably have six to eight to ten years to reverse declining trends for sage-grouse and their habitat on your own. Six to eight to ten years because it would take at least that long for a final ruling on the status of the sage-grouse. But some experts say that's not nearly enough time, that much of the sage step is so degraded that decades will be needed to really turn things around. One federal biologist just sighed when I asked him how sage habitat might be restored. The truth is, he said, that we just don't know. We can't put it back the way it was because we don't understand everything about how it used to be. Someone who does remember how things used to be is Bernard Harkness. 
In a high basin below the Continental Divide, where a snow-fed creek flows through low sagebrush, I found the retired sheep rancher standing in front of the rough log cabin he's lived in for 77 years. He told me of a time when the birds and their habitat were in better shape. They would come in here right around the 1st of July, just thousands and thousands of them. I've seen them flying and I don't know how many you'd see, hundreds of thousands, and so it's a big open grassland and a wide old five, six, seven miles you can see in any direction that's open there. And as far as you could see, there were big sage-grouse walking eight, ten feet apart. Harkness dug out a yellowed copy of the Lima Ledger from 1935 and pointed to an article titled, Hunter's Bag, Ton of Sage Hens. The headline was meant literally, in this basin alone, hunters killed 10,000 birds in a three-day season. If you wanted a sage-grouse dinner, you'd just walk out with the 22 and get three or four. He fried them, fried the breast, and then the others, he would, the backs and the legs and the giblets, he'd make a gravy just like a turkey gravy or something, and, uh, and on the potatoes, and that was a pretty good meal. As I was leaving, Bernard Harkness reminisced about the spring mating display of the sage-grouse. Before I die, he told me, I'd sure like to see the birds do that dance again. That's reporter Clay Scott in Montana back in 2002, and you can visit our website, LOE.org, to hear more of that story. Clay did eventually get to see the birds do that dance. There weren't thousands of them, as Mr. Harkness remembered, just five males at a clearing calling and dancing for all they were worth to attract a female. In a moment, we'll have an update on the plight of the greater sage-grouse with Colin O'Mara. He's the president and CEO of the National Wildlife Federation. But first, here's a recent recording of the greater sage-grouse mating call, courtesy of the Macaulay Library at the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. What are we listening to here, Colin Amara? So, Steve, you just heard the amazing mating ritual of the greater sage-grouse. And so now, just for all your listeners, imagine a, about a two-foot bird that's you know, pretty flabby, pretty chunky, hopping around with these massive tail feathers that are big and spiky and every and kind of backing the entire bird, as well as two huge yellow bulbous air sacs bulging out of their neck, trying to attract the females in their lack to make sure that they are kind of the, the best mating partner that they possibly can be. So that's a hard way to pick up chicks, isn't it? I'll tell you one thing. I mean, with given some of the dance moves we've seen over previous generations, I'll put the sage grouse moves against any human, <laughs> any human move in the uh, the last several decades. The sage grouse is considered by some naturalists as a indicator species. Why is that? So if you look at the sagebrush steppe habitat that kind of spans parts of eleven states across the the west. There's about 350 different species that depend on this habitat type. And there are species that range from things like mule deer, pronghorn, and just a range of other species. As I said, 350 in total. And if the sage grouse is doing well because the habitat is strong and because they can kind of support their survival and their population growth, then that means the habitat's of sufficient quality to support the other 350 species that depend on the same land. Now, Go back in history a bit. We used to have how many sage-grouse in North America? And what do we have today? Yeah, the numbers have dropped precipitously. Historically, the number has been well over a million birds. Some estimates go as high as 16 million birds were on the landscape. And most recent estimates have it, you know, one to 200,000. Some have it a little higher than that, but that's the general general gain. So at least a 90, you know, 95% decline in the, in the previous few decades. 
What was the setup under the Obama administration to protect this bird? Yeah, starting with the leadership of President Obama and Secretary Ken Salazar, who was running the Department of Interior during the first Obama term, there was a huge collaborative effort put together with Republican and Democratic governors across the West to really try to identify those measures that would be most effective at recovering the sage grouse. And they included a, a range of activities. So for example, one was reducing mining activities for coal mining in some of the most important habitat areas. Another was making sure that oil and gas developments that were proposed in various areas were limited to those areas that were not directly going to impact the sage grouse. There's also a series of measures that were required that if you did have impacts in the habitat, you had to mitigate those or do kind of restoration projects elsewhere to try to make sure that the overall population health would would benefit um, from additional kind of habitat availability. The new administration has walked some of that back. They're going to allow more activities there. What would be the impact of having the oil drilling that the Trump administration has authorized in this area, oil and gas drilling? Yeah, so the, the Trump administration has has proposed basically not differentiating between kind of drilling in areas that are important to the sage grouse and areas that are not as important to the sage grouse. And, you know, anytime you have kind of habitat disturbances on the landscape, it can affect, you know, this this bird that's very sensitive to habitat changes. I mean, the sagebrush that they depend on for kind of habitat value takes a long time to actually establish itself and to and to grow. And so if you're, you know, running pipelines, if you're you know, putting in well pads, if you're, you know, doing the things that kind of modern oil exploration can do, and you're doing it in areas that are directly kind of critical to the survival of the species, obviously you can, you can really alter their, their long-term chances. And these, these lacks, these kind of important habitat areas over some of the areas that we were trying to say should be off limits. And all the governors agreed. I mean, Republicans and Democrats from across the West agreed that these places should not be, should not be places where there's drilling activity, yet the Trump administration removed the protections that would have prevented that from happening. So what's the scientific basis of the Trump administration's decisions to uh, allow oil and gas drilling and cattle grazing? I don't think there is a strong scientific underpinning. I think that there were some specific industry groups and others that wanted to see some changes for financial reasons. There was some science that basically showed that you do have to kind of mitigate these, these impacts given the kind of the population densities that we're trying to achieve. But I think they're extremely vulnerable on the scientific side because this was more of a, a political process where they're asking people kind of what changes they wanted to see as opposed to talking to the leading scientists, almost all of whom said, you know, we need to keep the plans in place. And if anything, we should be talking about strengthening the plans, not taking a step backwards. And you have you know, world-class biologists from across the West united on this, that there really is no scientific basis that could allow this kind of activity and then also see the birds recover. How fair is it to say, Colin, that the Trump administration's approach to this is the heck with the environmental advocates and the species protectionists. We need these fossil fuels. We need to feed our cows. There was an executive order that President Trump signed in his first year that he kind of, that's the so-called energy dominance executive order. And it basically said that we are going to remove every barrier we possibly can to any kind of oil and gas development. And what we're seeing is that there's just no, there's no balance, right? There's no attempt to try to protect, you know, important wildlife habitat. There's been a little bit of an effort around some of the migration corridors for some of the bigger game species, in particular, things like mule deer and pronghorn and elk. But for the most part, we're seeing that we've seen 95 million acres, for example, across the entire country opened up for oil and gas drilling, auctioned out last few years. We've seen less than 30,000 acres um, proposed for kind of conservation protection. That's a massive difference. And 
you know, at a time when oil prices are low and, you know, we, if anything, we should be switching to alternative fuels and reducing our overall emissions given the kind of the escalation of the climate crisis. You know, this is going in exactly the, the wrong direction when what we really need in this country is balance. And that's what the Department of Interior is supposed to be doing. We're just not seeing much of it right now. So if the Trump administration began with a policy of full speed ahead for energy extraction from public lands, what would be the impact of the reelection of uh, Donald Trump as president? Uh, look, I think this is the one of the most important questions. I mean, I think there are, you know, if you look at polling in the West, an overwhelming number of kind of folks that live in places like Colorado and Montana and Wyoming and Idaho and Utah believe that the energy dominant strategy has gone too far. They oppose the the reductions of the national monuments at Bears Ears and Grand Staircase Escalante. They think that the public input that's been reduced should go back, that you know, folks should have more input into these decisions. But at the same time, I mean, I think, you know, when energy prices are low and unemployment's low, folks traditionally have had high probabilities of getting reelected. And so I think we're trying to make the case that conservation is a, you know, is, is an American value. This isn't a Democratic or Republican issue. It should, it affects everybody. And if we allow these species to go extinct, if we lose access to these amazing public lands that really differentiate us from the rest of the world, that we're losing something that we simply can't get back. And that at a time when one third of all wildlife species in this country are at heightened risk of extinction in the coming decades, at a time when our outdoor economy is an $887 billion juggernaut that's employing people in you know, every county across the country, that having this short-sighted focus on energy extraction at all costs is coming at the detriment of not only our wildlife and natural heritage, but it's coming at the detriment of one of the most explosively growing parts of our economy related to outdoor recreation. And so, you know, if the question becomes who's going to do more for, you know, American jobs, you know, we hope that the, the voices of outdoor recreation and, and kind of our natural assets are given the full attention of the, of the electorate and not just, you know, what the price is at the pump. Colin Amara is the president and CEO of the National Wildlife Federation. is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Naomi Ehrenberg, Bobby Baskin, Delilah Bethel, Paloma Beltran, Thurston Briscoe, Jenny Doring, Don Lyman, Liz Malloy, Ainsley O'Neill, Jake Rigo, Adelaide Chen, and Yolanda Omari. Tom Tiger engineered our show. Allison Learstein composed our themes. You can hear us anytime at LOE.org, iTunes, and Google Play, and like us, please, on our Facebook page, PRI's Living on Earth. And we tweet from at Living on Earth. You can find us on Instagram at Living on Earth Radio. I'm Steve Kerwood. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from you, our listeners, and from the University of Massachusetts, Boston, in association with its School for the Environment, developing the next generation of environmental leaders, and from the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting strategic communications and collaboration in solving the world's most pressing environmental problems. Support also comes from the Energy Foundation, serving the public interest by helping to build a strong, clean energy economy. And from Carl and Judy Fehrenbach of Boston, Massachusetts. PRI Public Radio International.